please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. The underlying message or theme, really, of our passage today continues to be what Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 18, the cross of Christ. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, our passage today, Paul is not beginning a new topic centered on what God's secret wisdom is. Instead, he's continuing to explain how God's wisdom in his plan of redemption through the cross is so incredibly different from and opposite of the world's wisdom. Paul is making sure these Corinthians see the vast difference between God's plan of the cross of Christ and what the rulers of this age think is wise and important and valuable. Why is Paul zeroing in on this difference here in the first two chapters of this letter? Well, simply because the Corinthian Christians are literally being sucked back into thinking that what their culture says is valuable and most important accurately reflects what is most important. Paul is trying to show them that if that is correct and their culture's most influential and brightest thinkers were truly wise about how life and the world really works, then how could those cultural leaders oppose the message of the cross and consider it to be utterly foolish? So, how does Paul help the Corinthian Christians see how far they have drifted away from God's truth? Well, it's really interesting. In these verses we're looking at today, Paul does that by drawing three specific contrasts. First, he contrasts those who receive God's wisdom with those who do not receive God's wisdom. Secondly, he contrasts the Spirit of God with the Spirit of this world. And thirdly, he contrasts the natural person with the spiritual person. Down through church history, there has been a lot of controversy about a few of the terms used today in today's passage, and therefore about what the Apostle Paul is actually saying. Now, in order to think correctly about all this, we've got a job to do today. We must understand the contrast that Paul draws here, and we've got to keep them in the context of the theme, which is what? Christ crucified. That's what he's still going over. And if we do that, the distinctions that we will see 
will greatly encourage us and challenge us in our own day. We need this. It's like it's written for today, which it is in many, many ways. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, is what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you didn't feel challenged in reading that text, there is something wrong with you. The first contrast that we see here is those who receive God's wisdom versus those who do not receive God's wisdom in verses 6 through the first part of verse 10. Now, Paul has already begun to draw this contrast for us. He did this in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And there we saw how what the world thinks is foolishness, which is what? The cross, the cross of Christ, is in fact the greatest display of God's wisdom. For some people, the crucified Christ is a ridiculous and foolish idea. But for those who believe, Christ crucified is both 
the power of God and the wisdom of God, which Paul wrote in verse 24 of chapter 1. Now, in verse 6, we read, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. See the conflict? It's pretty clear right there. As we begin, we must identify who the mature are. If you get this wrong, you get the whole text wrong. I think D.A. Carson has the clearest definition, and it's the simplest. The mature must refer to all Christians who cherish the message of the cross over against the world that rejects the message of the cross. That's the contrast where we see the conflict. Mature does not refer here in this text to some special class of super spiritual Christian. That's not the context. What Paul is doing is challenging the Corinthians' fundamental categories of thinking. He's teaching that all Christians are mature in the sense that they have come to terms with the message of the cross. While all others, by definition, have not. Therefore, the message of Christ crucified is the only fundamental dividing line in the human race. Everybody got that? If you need to step back just a second and think about it, think about it. Let me read it again. The message of Christ crucified literally divides the human race into only two groups. It's either accepted or it's looked at as foolish. The Christian message, our message of of Christ crucified, is not a part of the wisdom of this age. If this is true, why on earth should Christians be so infatuated with the culture's idea of what's important and valuable? When Paul has already said, the world's wisdom will be brought to nothing, chapter 1, verse 28, and be of absolutely no eternal value. Do you see how serious this topic is. The phrase rulers of the age does not refer to demons, as as some have tried to say, or, jokingly, strictly to politicians. Well, what does it refer to? It refers to those who rule the outlook and the values of any age the very influential people. When they say something, people go, oh, cool, I'd like to follow that. I'd like to do that. I'll think that way. The wise man, the scribe or scholar, and the debater or the philosopher, Paul already said that in chapter 1, verse 20. And the wise, the powerful, or influential, and those of noble birth that Paul identified Back in verse 26 of chapter 1. He's already laid a sneaky kind of foundation here. And he's going back 
using some of the same terms but expressed just a little differently. Why? Because his readers, the Corinthians, are hard-hearted. We could also say they're hard-headed. It's a tough nut to crack. And God is, and he's using God's word to open them up. These rulers of this age then, those who out, rule the outlooks and the values of their age, the very influential, these people are literally the best that the world can put forth. Yet they oppose the message of Christ crucified. Again, why would Christians stand with them about what's important? Their wisdom is without ultimate or eternal value. It's not what we proclaim. They may be wise and very observant about many things, which is true, and about a lot about how the world may work. But on the spiritual part, And the things that really matter, they're not even on the same page. And yet, we adore them. We lift them up and put them in a place that is reserved for God Almighty. What do we proclaim? We proclaim the wisdom of the cross that Paul describes in three ways here. First, in verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. The Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. We speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. Different English translations all hit on this. They just phrase it a little differently. This is wisdom that has been hidden for a long time, but has now been revealed. Paul himself and most other Jews missed the Old Testament pointing to Christ, did they not? Why? First, because however much the Old Testament points to Jesus, much of its prophecy is written in veiled terms and types and shadows. God inspired it to be written this way on purpose. And some of us get very angry because it wasn't written exactly like we want with an index and a whole list of this refers specifically to this and this to this. God veiled it for a reason. Secondly, sinful human beings have hearts that couldn't really see these things. Look quickly at verse 8 here in our text. None of the rulers of this age understood this. That is quite a statement. For if they had understood this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So a summary here of the first characteristic of God's wisdom in just verse 7 and 8. In God's grace and wisdom, Old Testament revelation was clear enough to be understood after the fact, but veiled enough that sinners would to some degree misinterpret it and put it together in a whole bunch of various different ways. And it was also in God's wise plan to actually have wicked 
human beings bring about God's own good purposes and plan of redemption by crucifying Christ. This is all mind-blowing. Every part of this. Well, there's a second description or characteristic of God's wisdom that we proclaim in the cross. Look at the last half of verse 7. The secret and hidden wisdom of God was what? Decreed by God before the ages for our glory. The phrase before the ages means the same thing as before the foundation of the world. In 1 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter writes, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your Faith and hope are in God. So God decreed in his wisdom, his plan of redemption in his son, before even creation. So that those who believe in Christ would be able to know their creator and hope only in him. So again, how could Christians become so enamored with the faddish ideas and trends of the cross-denying opinion makers of the day. And in that process of being infatuated with the world's wisdom, lose sight of the kingdom of their Savior. Because that's what happens. That's what happened to the Corinthians. That's what could very easily so happen right here and has happened in much of Christendom. Then in verse 9, Paul echoes this point with a quote from Isaiah 64, 4. And it seems like it kind of comes out of nowhere, but let's see how it fits. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined is what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, it doesn't take too much creativity to think how that's misapplied by most Christians today. Did you have that first impression? Great. I get everything that I can't even think about. I get it now. Let me have it, God. It's not what it means. Let's look at this. The summary of this second characteristic will help. A mark of every Christian. Hear that? A mark of every true, genuine Christian is a heartfelt acknowledgement of the inexpressible, inexplainable privilege to know God by being reconciled to him by the crucified Christ and therefore to have the sure hope of being kept in him.
There's a third description or characteristic that Paul gives here of God's wisdom. And it's in the first part of verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. People who do not see or believe in God's redemptive plan and won't unless God reveals it to us by His Spirit. Is that humbling? It should be. A way to summarize this third characteristic is this. There is and must be a work of God by His Spirit in a person for that person to truly see the truth of the gospel. And this has nothing to do with how smart we are or how important we are or what family we came from, etc., etc. It's a work of God's Spirit. So Paul says that those who receive God's wisdom are Christians. And those who do not receive God's wisdom are not Christians. He also characterizes or describes God's wisdom in three ways. It's a secret and hidden wisdom that has now been revealed in Christ crucified. Secondly, it was decreed by God before the foundation of the world. Why? So that those who believe in Christ would be able to know their Creator and hope only in Him. And thirdly, because of the sin of all humanity, which keeps people from seeing God's wisdom in Christ crucified, God has revealed it to us through His Spirit. Well, that brings us to Paul's next contrast. It introduces us because he spends the rest of this chapter and really after this chapter for a while looking especially at the Holy Spirit's person and work. And the second contrast Paul uses here, all of these contrasts, remember, are designed by Paul to do what? To help the Christians, Corinthians, See how far they have drifted from God's truth. That's the point. The second contrast, he contrasts the Spirit of God with the Spirit of this world in the second half of verse 10 through verse 13. Let me read that again. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. For those of you who are reading a different translation, another very possible way to read this is expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words or language. Big debate. Bottom line is it doesn't make too much difference, except if you want to just concentrate on something that doesn't point you to the main point. So don't go there. Just realize that's the difference. 
Only the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, can search our hearts and know the depth of our thoughts and disposition. In fact, verse 10, the last part, tells us here that the Holy Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Well, yes, the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity. He knows the Father, is an easy way to think about it, inside out. So if we're to know God and understand Him at all, we're going to have to receive the Spirit of God. We cannot find God by ourselves. A Christian is someone who has placed their faith in Christ and received the Spirit of God, which He gave as a gift. Who indwells every true believer when you are brought to Him in faith. The purpose of this gift we see in verse 12 is that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Do you get the point? We need help. A lot of help. All the way through the process and we keep finding out we need a lot more than we think we need. God displayed the revelation of himself in Christ, his perfect life and work on the cross, and then his resurrection. Now, was that a private or an open public display of God's wisdom? It was obviously public, outside, open. What he's saying here is that there is a second dimension of revelation because would we have understood the things freely given us of God just by the open public display of his revelation see the point these are hooked there's something that God reveals that takes place within the person and without it none of us would have understood what God had revealed in the open public arena Do we buy that? In other words, our sinful blindness keeps us from understanding the cross and our need of it. It's God's work through His Spirit in our hearts that enables us to see and understand what He has done in sending His Son to die on the cross for us. If you really believe that, you will be praying differently for yourself and those you love and your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't buy this, it's all about, hey, I've almost got it, God. Kind of give me a help here. And that doesn't work. Verse 13 And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Let me read the second definition again. Expressing spiritual truth in spiritual words or language. What's Paul, why did he put that in there? What is he saying? He's saying that it is the same Holy Spirit who has prompted him to preach the message of the cross. Remember, we labored over this. Paul 
content to preach the crucified Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit led him to. Paul is getting across the point that the Holy Spirit has taught him to avoid the wisdom of the world and how he preaches, teaches, and writes, which explains the whole first chapter. Remember back in verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul said his preaching of the gospel was not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What do you mean by that? Do you remember? Because if people are just, oh man, the way he said that was so great. He's the greatest speaker I ever heard. That was cool. And you go, well, what did he say? Well, not too much really about Christ. I don't know. I felt really good. He pumped me up. See the point? That's how we're led away and how the gospel is robbed of its power. So this was pretty clear in Paul's head, which is why he's so disturbed by the direction the Corinthians have gone. So don't miss then what the Corinthians are hearing Paul say, hopefully. What are they hearing? They're being confronted by the apostle who founded their church first. That should get their attention. Secondly, they're trying to have, they're trying to come to grips, or they're having to come to grips with recognizing that all their recent selfish behavior that we'll get to the whole rest of the letter and their thirst for their culture's interpretation of what Paul taught from God's word is in direct conflict with the God they proclaim to know. That's what they're hearing or they should be hearing. The warning flag should be going up. I am in trouble. We are in trouble We have turned this way or this way, and we are off track. They're not holding fast to the spirit of God's leading. They have drifted into adopting the spirit of Corinth, which is a question I'm sure that you can see that every one of us who claim the name of the Lord should be asking. What thinking is most influential in your life? Do you ever ask, what does God think about this? Where did I read this? Can I study about this in God's word first? Do we ask those questions first? Or is it after we're already tired of trying every other possible thing that we think might help? But Paul's got one more contrast here. This is the third contrast that he's using to help the Corinthians see how far that they've drifted from God's truth. And it contrasts the natural person with the spiritual person in verses 14 through 16. So remember, again, Paul is trying to help the Corinthians realize how far they've drifted away from God's truth. Their most obvious and apparent problems seem to come from hearts that are anything but humble. That is right on the mark. They're behaving in ways that are divisive. They're self-centered. They're lacking in love for one another. And it's apparent, even in the taking of the Lord's Supper. It's disgusting. 
Not to mention the sexual immorality, the lying, suing one another. So here in this last contrast, Paul wants them to see how utterly dependent they must be on the Holy Spirit. Hint. If you've been walking with God for any time at all, you should glory in the fact that you have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't fight it. You should be running to him more than you ever have. Why? Because you've found out the hard way what life is like trying to live it in your own strength. That's like the world lives. That's like the natural person lives. And you are not, if you are truly belonging to Christ, the natural person. In verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. Has Paul said this already? Yeah, but it packs an extra punch here in this third contrast. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There's a bunch right here at the end of that that you're going, whoa, 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 what does that mean? We'll get there. Let's go through it. The natural person is the person without the spirit. Therefore, they are not a Christian. The spiritual person is the person with the spirit. Therefore, they are the Christian. In verse 14, what two things does Paul say about the person who does not have the spirit of God? First, that the person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're foolishness to them. People do not hold on to and believe in things they think are foolish. Usually. Here, it's the cross of Christ that they think is foolish. What do we mean by that? It basically means that a person does not think they need someone to die for them, that they're kind of good enough that they can make it on their own. And yeah, they'll use the words and say, oh, I, I believe Jesus died. And yeah, I'm a sinner. I mean, you, you got to say that. You know, you know you're not perfect. But, and this is a big but, If they're saying that, do they know Christ and his cross? Do they understand that their sin is so horrible and so covering every part of their being that the Son of God had to come to die for them, to pay for it? Or do they think it's just a little something they can put over here so they can still do everything they want over here? This is vitally important. It's eternally important to get this. Secondly, Paul says that people are not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God 
because they're spiritually discerned. Back in verse 12, Now we believers have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You combine verse 12 and 14, put them together, and you see two sides of the same coin. Putting this together, we could, we could say this. Paul rules out the possibility, the possibility that anyone could possibly understand this without the Holy Spirit's aid and work. His focus here is our utter inability. And as Paul writes in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, I planted and Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now there's a huge question. It lurks, not in the baptistry, but it's, it's back here. It's behind you. How do we explain how people outside of Christ are still blameworthy or culpable for being unable to understand spiritual things? Can we explain it? Well, I, I have here somebody who tried. It's not that God makes us constitutionally unable to understand him and then toys with us for his own amusement. Rather, he has made us for himself, but we have run from him. The heart of our lostness is our profound self-focus. We do not want to know him if knowing him is on his terms. We're happy to have a God we can more or less manipulate. We do not want a God to whom we must admit that we are rebels in our hearts and mind, that we don't deserve his favor, and that our only hope is in his pardoning and transforming grace. We don't like that. We certainly cannot fathom a powerful creator who takes the place of an odious criminal in order to save us from the judgment we deserve. Or more precisely, we cannot fathom such things unless we have what? What is he saying here in our text? The Spirit of God. That's what it means in this context to be a spiritual person. Folks, if you are having trouble with these truths and you're arguing with them and you have been forever and your power is only your own, what is this telling you? it might be saying, you're not really who you think you are. You need to examine this again. Are you bowing before the God who came to die for you in the person of his son? Or at every turn, your opinion matters more than what the word says. Influential thinkers in the culture that you like mean more to you than what the word of God says. This is the biggest question in life. It is the most important issue in life. 
one of the saddest realities in church history. In addition, it's right here in verse 15, how verse 15 has been misused. People that do not want to come to grips with this truth, and they interpret this the very opposite of what the text is getting across. Dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Humility before the Lord Almighty. It's wrongly been used by some to justify an arrogance that makes them think they are somehow especially spiritual and discerning. And so authorized to be thought of as spiritually elite. You see where this is going? And even with infallible judgments so they can dictate about everything that suits them. Or I like the word pontificate. They even think they are so spiritual that others don't have the right to judge them or to speak in their life. After all, doesn't Paul say that the spiritual man is not subject to anyone else's judgment? That's not what this means. Why is this line of thought so off course? Well, remember that in the context here, The spiritual person is the person with the Holy Spirit. Contrasted with the natural person without the Spirit. When we read that the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, the all things refers to the wide range of spiritual and moral experience expected from somebody who has lived as a non-Christian before becoming a Christian. This is really kind of revolutionary thought. Which is the experience of most believers. True? I mean, I'm one of the others. I don't know when, I just know God did it. And it was pretty young. But you see the point here? A non-Christian has only the one experience of living without the Spirit of God. And so he cannot properly assess what goes on in the spiritual realm. Need an example? You're not going to ask me to come over to your house and properly assess the different hues of purple and blue flowers in your vase on your kitchen table. Why? Because you... Some of you, now all of you, have inside information that I am red, green, colorblind. Purple and blue just look like a different shade of blue to me. Some of you are making faces. And certain person in here over the years has kept asking me what it's like to not be able to see it. And I laugh because how am I going to answer that question? Do you see the point here? A person who has never had the Spirit of God cannot discern spiritual things. That's where this judgment issue comes into play here. You could do that with a lot of things. A deaf person is not going to be asked if they were born that way to describe the different tones of a symphony orchestra. They're not going to be able to. But the Christian can speak from experience 
observation and a growing knowledge of God's word. What God says is true about the natural person. So, got a question for you. Maybe it's not really the Christians who are being narrow-minded. And that doesn't mean you get arrogant about it. But I think we should turn some tables. We end up with verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Do you see the way this verse also shows two sides of one coin? What do I mean? Paul has made it very clear that unless the Holy Spirit enlightens us, God's thoughts will remain foreign to us. Has he not? That's what we've gone over. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But on the other hand, in the last part of 16, he writes that we have the mind of Christ. Do you you see how this, whoa. This is really another way to say that we've received the Spirit of God, which we saw in verse 11 and 12. So that means we have understood something of God's wisdom, especially the cross. We can say that. At least we understand something about God's wisdom, especially the cross. We also have this to pour over the rest of our lives. So does that understanding some of God's wisdom set us apart from the world? Is that a dumb question to ask? Which means also that the world will not understand us either? Do you want to be understood by the world more than you understand the one who saved you? Understood in the way of made to feel special and proper and lifted up? Do you you see how that goes a direction that's kind of dangerous? So what does Paul mean here by using this quote from Isaiah 40.13 here in verse 16? He does not mean that Christians have nothing to learn from non-Christians. That's also an extreme, dangerous view. Or that Christians are always above correction and rebuke. Never. What he does mean is that the mind of Christ is foreign to the unbeliever. And insofar as we have the mind of Christ, we will be aliens and foreigners to the unbeliever as well. And we better come to grips with it because we do not live in a culture anymore that basically has that as a foundational way to think about life. It's gone. Are you willing to come to grips with it? That's the question. So what do you think? Are the Corinthians beginning to see how serious their drift away from God and the Word really is? We don't know. He's got a lot of chapters left. But he had to write them two letters. It's a battle. Did Jesus speak about this? 
Yeah, well, you know that answer just because I asked it. Of course he did. So I'm going to close our time by reading what he said about it. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. John 15. Let's pray. Oh God, we too are confronted with the Corinthians. Thank you that your word shines light on areas that are fuzzy or dark in our own hearts and minds. Lord, we want to serve you. We want to give glory to you in our lives to matter as you use us to to know you and to enjoy you and to bring your gospel, the power of your gospel to people who have not heard. We ask that you would do this. We ask that you would use us in this church to encourage one another to do so, that our trust would be in you and that our dependence upon the Holy Spirit would grow and grow and grow. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? I don't know whether you guys are realizing this, but grace, love, and fellowship are kind of important. So when we say this, it's not just, hey, let's go to lunch. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We are dismissed.